Welcome to the FinTech Today podcast with your host, Carlos Cabrera, where everything is unfolded from FinTech news, personalities, and stories just for you. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Carlos Cabrera for uh, FinTech Today, giving you the best content out there for uh, in FinTech. My guest today is a very exciting one, Michael Hiles, and he's the... Uh, He's the founder and CEO of uh, 10XTS and the co-host of a very, a very exciting and uh, kind of a very diverse uh, podcast, Digital Dollar. Uh, he's been at it for one year and seven months and also the chair of the Global Records Management section of the uh, Government Blockchain Association. And he also attended Wright State University. Welcome, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Carlos. What, uh, what can you share with us the vision behind Commercium Bank and all this movement in Wyoming? Sure. Yeah, so um, back up a little bit. So I spent my entire career as a software engineer and uh, started coding on mainframes in the late 70s as a little kid. And uh, fast forward through several technology cycles to the advent of, you know, client servers, PCs, and then the Internet came along and then, you know, mobile and social media. And then all of a sudden this cryptocurrency thing, Bitcoin, started happening about a decade ago. And so, it's you know, people talk about it like it's new and emerging. It's been around for a little while. Right. Um, I, I, I got together with a, a group of guys and we were. You know, kind of kicking around the idea, hey, let's <clears throat> start a company. In 2017, we founded 10XTS as a uh, fintech with a regtech kind of focus uh, bias at the time. You know, it was at the, kind of the peak of the ICO craze. And we knew that uh, the market was going to you know, really take a major step backwards um, because of the, the lack of regulatory compliance in the space at the time and the, you know, the PR and FOMO driven hype around the technology. We saw this before in the early days of the internet, whereas Peapod, uh, <laughs> some of the major highly capitalized players at the time and you know, kind of burned through all the uh, VC money and cash burned out. <clears throat> and so um, we saw the relevance of the technology and the need to uh, you know, basically forward some solutions. Uh, and, and, and I spent about a decade in court case management systems from a public record standpoint. So as a, as a technologist, uh, I'm an information architect and spend a lot of times in record, spend a lot of time in records management and, uh, and then also workflow uh, process automation, particularly in the governance risk compliance area. And applying you know, those backgrounds to the problem set that was becoming very apparent uh, at the time, <clears throat> And, you know, 2016, 2017, the, the market was proving on its own the demand for uh, instantaneous settlement of transactions and cross-jurisdictional, cross-border capital mobility and, uh, you know, all of the great things that uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchains were proving. But, you know, the, the industry had started with the tech and then, you know, kind of skirted the law. We started with the law and worked our way backwards into the appropriate application of the tech 
And uh, we decided, hey, let's build a governance risk compliance layer that has now become uh, our, our flagship product, XDEX, the extended index. And we function as a GRC Oracle for uh, smart contract developers and uh, folks that want to tokenize assets, which there's you know a lot of vendors out there that can generate a ERC-20 token for you, but they don't necessarily provide you with all of the appropriate uh, governance, risk compliance, information governance layer necessary to stand up in, say, uh, a court of law, you know, like ultimately, and, you know, people sue each other over financial things, may not have anything to do with the technology, um, but uh, things end up in court and you have to produce documents and records that, uh, judges and juries understand and comprehend, and unfortunately, um, you know, hash values on a distributed uh, protocol-based uh, network are great for machines, but not so much for human for humans. Um, and so, because we had entered that space and had developed a, a pretty robust platform back in 2018, I said, "Hey, you know, we ought to take all of our GRC and our technology development and our experience and our awesome team, and let's buy a bank." And at the time, everybody says, oh, no, too much regulatory compliance. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what we do. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, at the time, there was not a sufficient uh, clarified definition of a lot of the things that would be necessary to actually operate a digital asset based or a you know blockchain adjacent uh, licensed banking institution. But then in 2019, when the state of Wyoming did a marvelous job, fantastic job of uh, really splitting hairs and defining digital assets and uh, the appropriate taxonomy that goes along with all of those things and codifying appropriately into law the uh, the definitions and the law words and the you know the, the actual the the language that uh, ultimately formed the Special Purpose Depository Institution Charter and then that was subsequently signed into law. Um, we made the decision and it was funny because I was about halfway through the, the negotiations. I was at the term seat stage early in uh, 2000 to acquire a broker dealer. And, um, and I got to thinking about it. I said, guys, you know, broker dealers, great. We'll make a lot of money in capital markets and, you know, keep right on going with our existing thesis as, as the tech company. But um, we really need to revisit this bank conversation. And at the time, I had uh, recruited a uh, gentleman, Jonathan Deaver. Uh, Jonathan served a couple of terms in the Ohio legislature, uh, was in the House of Representatives and chaired the uh, House Committee for Financial Institutions, uh, both terms. And uh, Jonathan was freshly out of the legislature, had gotten beaten in his election and uh, you know had lost uh, his challenger. And uh, he was an attorney in private practice. And I'd reached out to him and just, hey, you know, I need a public affairs director. Why don't you come on board to NXTS software company as my senior vice president and uh, run public affairs. And so uh, Jonathan and I spent a uh, better part of 2019, you know, kind of just testing the waters and, you know, making our rounds in DC and the various places, visiting, you know, the National Credit Union Association and lots of folks that he was buddies with from his time in the legislature. And, um, in, 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 you know, we're ready to go to market with XDEX, the extended index, uh, the first of 2020. In fact, I was sitting in an Uber um, 
headed to headed. We, we, we always stay at an Airbnb up in the Northwest neighborhood and we were headed down to the Capitol building for an event. And I remember coming through Chinatown and hearing on the Uber driver's radio about this Wuhan virus thing. And this was at the end of January of 2020. And, uh, you know, just sitting there thinking about it, it's like, well, you know, I'm looking around at all the signs that are in, you know, Mandarin Chinese or like, wait a second, I'm in a tier one global city. And, you know, if there's a pandemic getting ready to happen, I'm definitely in the wrong town. And um, sure enough, you know, a pandemic hits. And so who's crazy enough to uh, take a product to market at the beginning of a global pandemic? Well, we are. So uh, that's how the podcast came about. And so Jonathan and I, uh, you know, since we're all quarantined up and everybody's readily accessible, we decided, well, let's get some of our friends and fam and you know, good buddies in onto the podcast. And so we spent you know, a good part of last year, uh, you know, getting a great lineup. You know, we had Christopher John Carlo and Commissioner Hester Purse and, and uh, you know, some, you know, really trying to, you know, tap some marquee folks. And it was during that process that we decided, let's revisit this bank conversation in a serious way. And so I uh, put the kibosh on the acquisition of the broker dealer because I didn't have the resources to actually pursue both. And then we spent most of last year from, you know, April to the end of the year, uh, putting together uh, over 900 pages of bank charter application. We incubated the management team and um, I went kind of on a recruiting rating spree, had some contacts up in Chicago at HSBC Retail and uh, you know pulled some folks, which is pretty easy to do if you followed along the storyline of what's going on with HSBC US and uh, you know contrast with uh, HSBC Global. And so we were able to pull some firepower out of HSBC and we put together a, a great team and uh, we submitted our application to the Division of Banking of the State of Wyoming at the end of the year last year. We worked alongside uh, Christopher Land, who was general counsel for the division at the time. He has since moved out of the state, you know, moved out, oh, wait, you know, left the state division and become uh, and has become Senator uh, Cynthia Lamas's uh um council and uh liaison to the uh treasury in dc and um but we worked with chris before he left the state to get our application in he's like hey guys i'm leaving you know at the end of the year um we've worked really hard on this thing you might want to get it in before i'm out and uh so we made the mad dash to the finish line and uh got our application in literally right before the christmas holiday and um then you know, worked through the transition and uh, into the early January, our uh, charter application was approved. And then the way the state of Wyoming works with the uh, Division of Banking and the uh, in the board, uh, they only convene meetings once a month uh, for this kind of a thing. And um, they skipped a couple months in the spring. And so uh, we finally had our charter hearing uh, June 29th. And, um, and so you know, the, the bank team I, I refer to because it is truly an independent institution. You know, bank regulators uh, don't uh, take very kindly to a uh, high concentration of ownership in, uh, you know, banking institutions. For some reason, they see that as like a, you know existential risk to the, uh, you know, the sanctity of the institution. Probably a good idea. And so we put together an independent board of directors and, uh, you know, got the got the management team sufficiently uh, divested from the 10 XTS software company and um, had our hearing June 29th and August 10th of uh, this past year. Uh, our charter application was approved. And so now we're working diligently to uh, open the bank operation 
while continuing forward as the uh, software solutions provider. And we're out front as the software company working in capital markets with uh, broker dealers, investment bankers, institutional clients to ultimately tokenize their security assets, their securities of everything from, uh, you know, multiple asset classes from real estate at the institutional level, uh, all the way down to small, you know, regulation, a crowdfunding projects and, you know, smaller, uh, you know, projects got a lot of, um, you know, private equity funds, venture capital funds that have moved onto the platform. We now got about 1.3 billion in assets that have been tokenized via the XDEX platform. Got about another 6 billion in the pipeline. And if you track the securities token space right now, there's about 1.2, 1.3 billion actually trading in the secondary market in total. Um, we've got that much on our network you know, that's not trading in the secondary market yet. Uh, and another six billion in the pipeline. We're not the only guys doing it, so we see you know this exponential curve starting to really crank up as capital markets infrastructure recognizes the the merits of uh, using ledger-based uh, token-based technology as post-trade market infrastructure and post-trade settlement uh, processes. And that's ultimately where you know strategically we're looking at the bank to become a custody uh, custody provider uh, for custodial services of um, you know tokenized securities and uh, assets, um, you know, providing, you know, traditional banking services and rails, where the governance risk compliance, you know, application layer for the records eight recordation and provide that border between the bricks between the institutions and uh, working with, you know, third party ATSs and exchanges that are licensed securities exchanges, excuse me, as well as, um, uh, you know, other custodians and, uh, you know, broker dealer networks to, uh, you know, really just provide that uh, unique perspective that we have, which is really boring records management. Nobody wants to talk about it, even in the IT space, you know, governance risk compliance. Is, uh, and, and Michael, the six billion, is it just you guys or is it the whole market that uh, when you talk about that, that's, that's that's just our pipeline. So you can wow. only imagine wow. there's probably other, you know, you know, other players in the space. Um, the the World Economic Forum back in the spring of this year put out a study that said 866 trillion in global assets are candidates, you know, basically going to come online as tokenized assets over the course of the next 15 years. Wow. Massive. That's yeah, um, unbelievable stats. And that, that's great that you say that because our listeners realize the importance uh, they, you know, the growing importance of, of the crypto and blockchain market. It's, uh, it's great. I'm very happy you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the, this is very distinct and separate because we're talking about crypto and blockchain, but specifically as it applies to tokenizing, you know, real world assets and securities, as opposed to just pure play digital assets like Bitcoin or uh, Dogecoin or Shiba uh, or, you know, <laughs> any of the you know, Johnny come lately flavors of, you know, just purely mathematical constructs, whereas applying the same immutability, the same construct of the technology to, you know, the, the, the unit of account and the tracking of the uh, ownership of fractionalized securities and uh, fractionalized assets. And how, for instance, I know that uh, you mentioned real estate and that's, what uh, a lot of a lot of the people I've been talking to also uh, have said in, when it comes to tokenizing assets. What uh, what do you in in terms of real estate? What's the section that's being that 
that's leading the pack? Is it uh, tokenizing the asset itself or is it like tokenizing the, uh, for instance, a lot of people have spoken about um, putting the, the property titles on the chain. What's, what, uh, what cut, what's actually your vision about what will be the future in terms of, uh, of real estate leading this uh, movement? That's a great question because, of course, you know, in the United States anyway, there are approximately zero county recorders that recognize a right and rim title, you know, a, a, you know, ownership of real estate title or deed in the form of a, a, a digital token. It's good old fashioned traditional deeds and titles in the recorder's office, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, on the tokenization side to date, typically what has happened with the real estate uh, projects, including ours, uh, is the, the asset was placed into a special purpose vehicle of some form, whether that's a limited partnership or a REIT, as we've seen in the market. Um, and then the interest in that special purpose vehicle entity is ultimately tokenized as a security. So the deed is owned by the, the entity and then the, the, the security itself is what is tokenized. That being said, I can tell you that there's been some interesting pilot projects that have taken place in the direct title space. And it does appear now that the um, at least some of the bigger players in the title industry, uh, you know, the title insurance side in particular, some of the, you know, some, some pretty good sized players are starting to lean in on the merits of the records management and the governance risk compliance, the GRC of, you know, the record side of, of title as a, you know, similar digital transformation in their space. Um, and so at some point there'll be a, there'll be this inflection where, you know, when the, the, the insurance companies and the, you know, the title industry and, the real estate industry, you know, in general, um, all of a sudden they've got this highly efficient, decentralized information technology framework uh, operating across the private sector. And then the last mile missing ingredient is the, the public record side of the fence. It'll put sufficient pressure on, I believe at that point, um, the, the, the state and local governments mm -hmm to start to evolve and adopt towards the actual uh, tokenization of the, the, the deed and the real estate itself. Awesome. Um, but it's going to take a while because your, your typical, your, your product life cycle in government is 20 years, right? I mean, sure. in the state of Ohio, anyway, I know in some county courthouses, there's like some D-Base 3 instances still running in some offices and places. So, you know, things don't move very fast in the Luddite world of, uh, you know, state and particularly local government. And, um, you, know, you know, when you're a hyper uh, progressive growth phase of technology like we are in space right now, um you know, the, the, the ice water bath reality is it's going to be a bit, you know, until there's enough progressive younger folks that are sitting in those seats. And then there's got to be budget allocation, which of course, as we know, can tends to be a fairly contentious process to, uh, 
you know, say, well, I need, a, I, I need to rip and replace this legacy system. Well, why? The old system is working. And, um, you know, those typical political battles go on. But at some point, you know, the younger generation is coming up, you know, the millennials and the, uh, the I guess they're the, uh, the well, I'm Gen X, so it'd be the Gen Zs, the Zoomers, you know, the, the kids coming up now. I don't know. I've lost track of all the, the marketing labels. But um, at some point, you know, the, the rubber will meet the road when the younger folks are in sufficient mass to say, this is stupid. Why haven't we done this yet? And get out of the way, old, old Luddite. Don't <laughs> put them out the pasture. So. Do, do, you, do you see... Um... A, a big value into the current movement uh, from, uh, say, personalities such as Mayor uh, Suarez in Miami, uh, driving, trying to drive business towards uh, Miami in terms of blockchain and fintech. Yeah, I do. I think you have progressive uh, officials. I mean, I go back to Wyoming, for example. I, you, you look at what Wyoming did. Uh, now they're a very small state with only you know approximately half a million population of the whole state, so it's pretty easy to get things done um, if the folks in the state want to do it. Um, but economic development was absolutely one of the key drivers in pushing that policy because they saw the opportunity to do something different. And um, you know, at the time, you know, Christopher Land and Commissioner Albert Fortner and those folks recognize that we actually could do this. We've got a shot to do this. And um, I was just out there for the blockchain stampede last month. And I can tell you, you know, it was like a bunch of kids are wandering around in Cheyenne and Laramie. And it's like, well, where are you from? Oh, we're from New York. Well, you know, what are you doing out here? Well, we came out because of the clarity of the regulation. And, you know, this is the best place in America to, to actually uh, do something in the blockchain space because of the law. And, you know, you, you look at what, you know, Miami's doing you know, and, and Mayor Francis Suarez is an amazing guy and, you know, really such a huge advocate. Of course, Miami's just growing by leaps and bounds. And I don't think you can find a condo or an apartment in the whole city at this point. But, um, you know, as a city, it's a little tougher because you're still subject to the, uh, you know, the umbrella authority of the county and the state. Um yeah, he's done incredibly well with the public relations front and, um, you know, such a huge advocate for the tech. And of course it doesn't hurt to have, you know, Bitcoin conference there every year, <laughs> FTX arena. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, that trend will continue. Um, plus, you know, it's probably a lot nicer place to live than upstate New York or something. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't like the cold weather myself. In fact, everybody's asking, are you going to move to Wyoming? And I'm like, you know, every time I go out to Wyoming, I'm driving up 25 from Denver to Cheyenne and I, I'm driving across 80 from Cheyenne to Laramie. And I see these miles and miles and miles of like 12 foot high snow fence breaks. And, you know, <laughs> like that's a warning to Mike Hiles. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> you don't want to live here, <laughs> at least in the wintertime. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Miami or San Juan, you know, like uh, I'll see you all in July. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a reality. A lot of us uh, up here in Toronto is sort of it's flat, but you do see, uh, as you know, a lot of snow. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a remote. Uh, I would say sometimes places that are not uh, 
weather friendly actually end up getting a lot of a lot of things that need to be done such as in this case wyoming you know yeah and uh, yeah. in in terms of um right now what what you see with um being the co-host of uh, this digital dollar podcast and also being uh, such a big figure in in the, in the software and, and uh, blockchain industry do you find that uh, do you find that sort of um, easy to be on both sides of the fences being uh, doing the podcast and and having a, a different vantage point such as your everyday life um well So in all fairness, we have not put out a podcast episode in quite some time. So Jonathan and I have been discussing season two. I'm not sure when that's going to happen because we've sort of been busy, you know, starting Mm -hmm. a bank. And um, but the intention is to get back to it um, just by virtue of our combined networks. And, you know, at 10XTS, our team's pretty uh, potent. You know, we've got a bunch of A-listers that are really well connected and, there's really nobody we can't get to. It's just a function of, um, you know, it's a massive lift to, to, to do what we're doing on the, the right. software side. It's hard enough starting a software company, let alone a bank uh, on top of it. And then, you know, we never set out to run the podcast as an independent media thing. And it was really just a, you know, brand extension effort. We came up with a cool name and a cool, you know, got the URL digital dollar show and, um, and, um, you know, we've got plans to get back to it, but at the moment it has been on hold and you know, it, it's, it's tough. You know, I mean, you, you run the podcast, you know how it is. There's, you know, two hours of pre-production, post-production for every hour that you're actually talking to the guest. And, um, you know, by the time you field a team and put those things together, um, it's not enough hours in the week, but, um, I have fun with it. You know, I speak as much as I can. I'm at a conference today and, uh kentucky you know i'm at eastern kentucky university with the kentucky bankers association conference with uh actually commissioner albert fortner from the state of wyoming was on stage a little bit ago with the uh uh kentucky banking commissioner charlie vice and um you know kentucky's been uh rattling the saber again from a uh, legislative standpoint this year mm-hmm. to uh this legislative session to potentially uh, introduce some additional uh banking uh legislation reform for the uh, state bank charters here in Kentucky. And then we've got representatives. We're working in South Carolina. I uh, look, look for some moves out of South Carolina this next legislative session as well. Um, you know, I've got representatives here in Kentucky today from South Carolina that are uh, also looking to uh, uh, amend their state statutes to, uh, you know, enable state chartered banks in South Carolina to also uh, pursue the digital asset space. So would you say in the future, are you thinking in terms of expanding, uh, if allowed, your bank south to, say, South Carolina or or any place? Or do you intend to stay local within that state, being that you are such a a new bank and, and... Well, we're not going to end up, uh, you know, with billions of dollars in, you know, custody custody assets out of the state of Wyoming. And, you know, the state of the state charter uh, in Wyoming allows us to enter into uh, 
you know, relationships, you know, we can open an account from anybody anywhere. And I have to be careful because I'm not the bank. So, you know, I want to be right. very clear and emphasize I'm the software company. We're the single largest shareholder of the bank. Right. Um, I'm the CEO of the software company. They have an independent management team and a board, whatever that uh, institution determines that they want to do from a strategic standpoint, they of course are empowered to do those things. Now that I've disclaimed that sufficiently, I can tell you what the discussions have been all along to enter into correspondent banking relationships with other state charter banks in other states, mm-hmm. assuming those banks in those states are permitted to do that sort of thing. Oh, I see. So you're pretty astute in your uh, deduction that, yes, we would enter into uh, business-to-business banking-as-a-service relationships with other uh, you know, community banks, state chartered banks to provide all of the suite of digital assets services on the back end. Um, not me as a fintech or a reg tech, right? That's a different conversation. You go pound on the door as a CEO of a fintech or a, uh, you know, a technology company on a, at a bank. That's a very different discussion than a bank knocking on the door to another bank saying, we've got these chartered approved services. Would you like to uh, provide them to your retail account base uh, on a whole, you know, on, you know, on a retail basis and, you know, we're the back end processor for the, those types of things. And yeah, it's consistent with payments and, you know, card services. There's a lot of, you know, back end banks that, you know, don't really necessarily have a big retail window or retail footprint and just simply provide uh, you know, forms of banking services on the back end to other institutions. But, but suffice it to say, yes, you know, um, you know, the commercial bank effort is strategically tied to the development and rollout uh, through the community, uh, you know, other community banks as you know, community bank channel. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, so basically you want to focus on the business to business sector, not the retail side of things when it comes to uh, the sort of the direction that they might get indirectly from you um, when it comes to commercial? That's right. I mean, first of all, in most banks, you know, a cash checking account tends to be a loss leader anyway. Um, they're, they're not making money with it. The special purpose depository institution charter is non-lending. So it is strictly a depository institution that provides access to, uh, you know, the, 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 the discount window and, you know, can access the federal reserve rails uh, as a bank. And because it's non-lending, um, you know, becomes you know, fee paid services, which, you know, are already razor thin margins. And so you're not going to make any money on retail checking accounts necessarily. We certainly will open retail checking accounts, but that's not our core mission. Those retail checking accounts already exist in every community bank in America. Why would we want to go try to recruit uh, those folks? So from a retail standpoint, we see the, you know, traditional checking services, cash services. Um, You know, there's a tremendous opportunity there to just simply provide business accounts to blockchain and crypto adjacent businesses that have been ousted from their banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in the space, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm general partners of a crypto fund that got thrown out of Huntington Bank. And I don't care about naming names anywhere publicly because well, you that's can. what happened. <laughs> 
I can. And um, so big regional bank, Huntington, longtime relationship with them, you know, seven figure a- average, you know, daily balance in the accounts. And um, for whatever reason, their AML department says, no, you guys are too close to that crypto stuff. Even though it's a traditional limited partnership, it was literally just a GPLP structure and traditional securities. And then, you know, we, we have a, um, you know, a fund that has a relation, you know, our fund has a relationship with another actively traded fund and we act as a feeder. And, you know, our mission was to provide, you know, smaller check sizes access to the volatility of the digital asset space without having to get their hands dirty in the technology through the form of a traditional limited partnership. So we really didn't keep that much money relative to the, the bank in the account. And then we were deploying that money to another limited partnership that then did all the active trade desk of, you know, the, the day-to-day action on the, on the crypto trading side. Well, apparently that was, you know, too scary and Huntington adopted a zero tolerance policy. So you, you can actually, in some way, shapes and form, um, in the Huntington in particular, and I can't speak to other banks AML because this is my personal experience, but um, uh, they have a harder stance on crypto than even cannabis and CBD accounts, right? Now, at one point, apparently, they had a really strong stance against CBD. It's like, you know, zero tolerance for any retailer mm-hmm. that sells any CBD product. I'm like, so basically, Huntington Bank, your AML department is declaring that you would not want Target as a retail customer because Target sold CBD <laughs> products, right? But when it kind of came to the crypto, I mean, they didn't, they weren't hearing it, they weren't having it. Gave us a deadline, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah, come pick up your money out of the account by this date, or you know, we'll mail you the check. And um, so we ended up, uh, you know, obviously now we have our own institution, which mm-hmm. is not ready to open yet, but uh, you know, we'll. We, we we opened up an account at another you know fairly crypto friendly bank, um, but it's hit or miss. And when it comes back to you know just providing fee paid cash account services, mm-hmm. um, you know there's there's a decent market that's there. And then separately, what's interesting for the state of Wyoming in particular, um, because it's a depository institution. You know, the only thing that's really under consideration from you know, you know first of all, the bank has to operate on 102 percent liquidity. So that's, there is yeah. no hypot. Yes, it's non-lending, right? So all deposits are safe at all times. You would want, as a bank customer, I believe, to pay those fees because you know that your money is truly never at risk, and because you know the bank is required to capitalize two percent of whatever the depository basis is, and then all of the custody assets they're not held on balance sheet. Those are all off balance sheet assets. So it's really interesting, you, you, you know, it's just really the cash money and the things that are put in depository, but custody is not considered depository when it comes to, say, you know, a multifamily community, a real estate that's in a special purpose vehicle. I mean, you could have $50 billion in custody assets. They're not considered depository at that point. That's, uh, that's, it doesn't, in my eyes, as it, as a banker, uh, ex-banker, I should say, that I understand why, but but uh, seeing the future in blockchain, definitely you got a very valid point that uh, 
you know, there's going to be a, a, a good balance between uh, risk and uh, and also uh, uh, being aware of, of, of the future and how things are evolving as, as, as we speak, you know, so, yeah. I'm literally at a conference today, you know, listening to the state of Kentucky, all the bankers in the state of Kentucky and the regulators, you know, trying to make heads or tails of this innovation and exactly what you said, the balance between efficiency and, you know, advancing the ball down the field on the technology front. And then of course, you know, where's that risk balance, right? Compliance balance, you know, what are, and, and, you know, really from an SPDI standpoint, what you're doing is you're trading lending risk for operational risk, because now you're talking about cybersecurity and you're talking about workflow processes and, you know, all of these uh, off balance sheet types of assets. Um, and and that, that's where the, the risk equation from a compliance standpoint kind of shifts because you're not talking about lending portfolio risk as much because it's a non-lending bank. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, really it comes down to operational risk. Well, for a guy that's been in workflow automation and, you know, compliance automation my entire career, I don't see that as a risk. <laughs> right? It's like the risk is, when you smoke test the code and you put it into production, either the logic works or it doesn't. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the cybersecurity rails around that, which I certainly don't want to minimize because that's massive risk. But it's known, right? I mean, it's, it, these are known areas. Whereas if you're betting on a portfolio of ponies on you know, the lending side and then particular with reserve requirements and banks, you know, from a stress test standpoint. And, and you just don't know what your uh, local bankers, you know, agreeing to put money into. And you don't know, you know, if those deposits are genuinely at risk or not. I don't trust the system right now. Well, you said it and uh, you, uh, you've seen it all. So, so now that, that we're, I've reached this point, Michael, what is your message to the people out there that wonder about, say, will crypto be compliant, fully compliant, and what is the future for our listeners right now? I, th I think even Janet Yellen years ago conceded that there's nothing that could be done about Bitcoin. Of course, that was you know really the, the, the first conversations. I think it was about 2014. Um, you know, there had been a lot of discussions about, you know, how do we stop this thing? You can't. I mean, you literally have to pull the plug on every Internet server in existence and that's not happening. Yeah. Um, what it's going to come down to. And, and there's there's some interesting political battles that are mounting up and I, I can talk about those in a sec. But um, at least from a. You know. A regulatory standpoint, they know that they can't stop a decentralized network. It's like, you know, like I said, unplugging the internet. Mm -hmm. What they can control is they can control anything that has anything to do with. Uh, lately, I've been jokingly tongue in cheek calling them boomer inflation coupons. I mean, U.S. dollars. Um, anything to do with treasury currencies. Um, they can control, right? Yeah. And it's, so it's the ingress and the egress to and from the, the the network for the digital assets that is certainly going to fall under their direct purview. Mm -hmm. Now I know the Bitcoin maximalists. You know, a lot of folks are like, 
well, you know, why would you ever use dollars? I live my entire life on, you know, Bitcoin and gift cards. <laughs> like, well, that's not exactly feasible. I mean, you know, there's ways to do it, but for the average Joe six pack in middle America, you know, in, in, in the suburbs, um, they're still going to have to pay rent or pay the mortgage with good old, you know, boomer inflation coupons. So, um, which means that there's a significant amount of control and you're moving away from that peer-to-peer token-based model back to the traditional uh, intermediary account-based model for transactions. That's what they can regulate. And that's what they will regulate. They do regulate, right? I mean, even Coinbase and all the exchanges, they're all money services businesses, right? They all have MSB licenses in every, you know, every state. Um, I think that the future will be very interesting when you look at the language that's been introduced several times uh, over the past couple of years. It started with the stimuluses um, back in 2020. Um, you start to look at the saber rattling around uh, central bank digital currencies, treasury currencies. Um, and then the overtures that have been made as of late to try to pull stable coins under banking regime oversight. Now it's a mixed bag for me because I cannot stand the idea of this current you know, proposed infrastructure bill. And we're going to print more uh, funny money out of nowhere. And now they're proposing, you know, the platinum trillion dollar coin under minting, you know, rights and all these things. It's like no one is believing your sleight of hand, you modern monetary theory, green new deal folks. Sorry, don't mean to offend anybody, but, you know, we've got tons of historic precedents of what happens to, uh, you know, the debasement of currency and inflation when you, you know, arbitrarily increase the monetary supply to infinity. Yes. Um, and I think we're experiencing yet again the, the net effects of, you know, what had started. Uh, really, I don't think we even got through the full economic ripple cycles of the original quantitative easing from the, the, the financial crisis in 2008. You know, there's a reason T-bills are 30 years, right? Because it literally traditionally has taken 15, 20, 30 years for monetary policy to finally ripple its way all the way through the entirety of the system. And I think that, um, you know, what, to, what we're watching is a, a really weird dynamic where in this alternative multiverse reality where, you know, up is down, black is white, and uh, truth is stranger than fiction, the banks are actually going to become the good guys to contrast the political fight against the treasury currency at the CBDC level. Now, I know Christopher Giancarlo and the Digital Dollar Project, they're all proposing, oh, it's going to be a parallel system and blah, 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 blah. And, and I agree. I mean, that, that's what the architecture is. And, um, you know, I'm in full support of the efficiency of the system. But when you look at what the at least current administration is proposing with a $600 window into your individual transactions at the bank level, um, what happens when that goes to down to the penny level on a real-time basis that the United States Treasury Department has real-time access to all of your finances and can theoretically control all of your finances? And that's why I say, you know, the banks emerge as the good guys, because as a private sector solution, stable coins through, you know, private sector entities like Commercial Bank, for example, um, 
they become that last bastion of privacy and they become that last stop gap, at least in America, we have the fourth amendment. Um, sure. You have third party doctrine and, you know, the, the government can go straight to, you know, uh, you know, third party company like Facebook or, you know, whoever, where there's a click wrap and a terms of service that you agreed to. And, um, you know, they don't require a subpoena and notice to you to aggregate your data. Um, Certainly there are those distinctions, but at least there is a level of uh, due process that's required for those things, as opposed to a central bank digital currency where there is a complete and total real-time access and window to all of your finances from top to bottom. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I'm not a fan of that. And I don't believe at present the alternative of you know, purely Bitcoin and purely crypto is this alternate form of money. It will exist and it will exist in parallel and there will be intersect points, as I said, ingress, egress to and from, you know, the, 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 the fiat treasury types, you know, central bank currencies into the digital currencies. But um, I, I think that there's going to be an interesting political battle that mounts as the bankers associations in conjunction with the state banking commissioners uh, who are also have a vested um, political interest to push back against the feds in this regard because of state sovereignty, right? I mean, the feds are proposing a massive power grab to pull all stable coins and, you know, central bank digital currencies, all these things under purely a broad brushstroke federal purview and they forget that states have rights. There is a 10th amendment, right? I mean, they, in, it, there is a separation of powers. And I can tell you, at least from the, you know, the banking commissioners that I talk to, they're not too happy about that. They're not too thrilled with the idea that OCC is going to come in and just kick over the garbage can and, you know, spew the contents out all over the street. And the, the, the state commissions and the state legislatures have zero say in the matter. So I expect to see from a future forward, you know, if my crystal ball is clear enough and not foggy today. Um, you know, sure I it these, is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I see these becoming, you know, emergent topics of discussion over the next, you know, 18, 24, 36 months as we proceed forward with the, policy, the policies. Now, that being said, I'm sitting in a room full of bankers today. They have no idea any of this stuff is going on. Hmm. They're just, you know, they're still stuck on this is Alice. This is Bob. Alice wants to send Bob a Bitcoin. You know, I mean, and and you know, when you look at back in 2018, Gartner put out a report that said that uh, by 2030, 80 percent of traditional financial institutions will no longer exist. Yeah. Stark reality, right? And yet, here are the community banks, guys like us, we're working to try to you know like shore up Main Street and say, hey, let's return power to your community banker. Why? Well, I can't get anybody on the phone at Coinbase, but I can sure walk through the front door of my local community bank and sit down and demand a meeting with the president of the bank. Right. They've been there for 10 generations. So, you know, I like the idea of strengthening our small to medium banks. The problem is, is they've just been repeatedly put out of existence. Right. Nonstop. In, you know, 2008, we lost 500 bank charge. And there's not that many de novos coming down the path because it's expensive, right? It's $50 million to start a bank. Oh. It's not cheap. 
you can't just, it's not like a tech startup where you can go bootstrap and then go get some VC funding and all. I mean, you've got to have, ca- you know, minimum capital requirements are, you know, massive. And then the average cost to a community bank with a hundred million in assets or less. And that sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people, but that is nothing in banking. That is such a, that's like a one branch oper- local operation with an ATM at the, you know, local five and dime. You know, it's a hundred million in assets, right? The average cost of compliance is 8.7% of their annual budget. Which is, you know, crazy, right? So it's dispro- the compliance cost alone disproportionately affects the banks and they just can't compete in the traditional space. Whereas we see digital assets, we see the emergence of all this stuff coming as being new opportunities of new product lines. I mean, what if a local banker, you go in, mom and pop goes in, sits down at their local bank, wants to buy their first, you know, three, two single family home. And the bank immediately has a way to tokenize that loan and fractionalize that loan thus securitizing it, right? Mm. But how does it work today, right? Well, you bundle those loans with a wholesaler that aggregates and packages them up in these massive mortgage-backed securities tranches. And, you know, the local retail bank acts as a feeder through this wholesaling system. Well, what if there were alternatives to, you know, aggregation of these loans that are being generated at the retail level? It's going to completely remix the entire concept of mortgage-backed securities over time, right? right? Right. And if, if I'm a banker and I can shave 50 bips additional off of a deal, that's huge. That's massive. 50 basis points extra on a deal. Holy mackerel. You know, like, send me more. <laughs> right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for sharing with us uh, your visions. It's a pleasure. And, uh, you know, we appreciate uh, all the, uh, the time you have given us today. And uh, keep us uh, posted on, on the progress that you do with Commercium and uh, your software company, 10XDS. We'll do it. I really appreciate it. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm on LinkedIn, at Michael Hiles on Twitter. Um, I try to be as responsive as I can to folks. And uh, just, uh, you know, support your community bankers, believe it or not. <laughs> That's my party message. There you go. That's the message. <laughs> With that, we close today, and thanks so much, Michael. Pleasure. Thanks, Carlos.